0: following is a teaching message from shore community church for more information on shore for our teaching resources visit www.shore.org.nz okay well we are continuing this morning the series that we started a few weeks ago now in the sermon on the mount so if you've got a bible this is a good time to pull it out. We do have study sheets for this series. So if you're keen to follow up, I know a lot of you are doing this in life groups as well. So I hope that's going well. Some questions that are helping you maybe to flesh out some of what we're talking about, interact around some of this. If, even if you're not in a life group uh, or not in a group that's doing this, if you just want to grab those discussion sheets for yourself, uh, they'll give you some follow up questions every week. You can grab those from the website. You can grab those from our church app. Just feel free to do that. But uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and this is The greatest sermon ever preached. Not the longest sermon ever preached, but the greatest sermon ever preached. It comes from the mouth of Jesus. That's why the words are in red in a lot of your Bibles. Uh, And Jesus is teaching us through these profound words what it means to be disciples. We've talked about this to be disciples, not just followers, not just crowd, but to be disciples and to live in the kingdom and to be citizens of his kingdom and to walk in the way of Jesus in the world. And so today we're turning from the Beatitudes that we've done over the past four weeks now, all those blessings, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the pure in heart, and so on. And now we're pivoting to the main body of the sermon, which is still, we've got a lot ahead of us, several chapters, but now we're kind of into the the main body of the content of the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 5 this morning, 13 to 16, and Evie Guthrie is going to come and read this for us. Thank you, Evie. Good? Here we go. We're back up and running. All right. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Eugene Pedersen. He uh, translated the message version of the Bible, and he wrote a lot of other books as well. Not as good as the Bible, but other books. <laughs> and uh, in one of, his sto- one of his books, he tells a story of from his childhood about a guy named Garrison Johns. It's not his real name, but that's the name Eugene gives him. And uh, Garrison Johns was the school bully so this was, I think, primary school age for him. And uh, Garrison would find Eugene every day after school, and he'd pick on him, and he'd tease him and mock him and start start jibing him, and he would kind of beat him up. Uh, and Eugene would come home every day with some bruises from Garrison Johns, um, feeling totally humiliated about himself. And this just carried on. For some reason, Garrison Johns just had his sights set on Eugene. This was the kid that he wanted to pick on, and so every day after school he just had a go at him. Uh, But Eugene came from this nice Christian family, and his mum told him from the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Eugene, you've got to just turn the other cheek, and you've got to love your enemies, and you should even pray for Garrison, which I don't think Eugene really wanted to do, but this was what he was being told at home. And so one day, Garrison comes and and starts picking a fight with Eugene, and Eugene's there with a few of his friends, and Garrison's kind of warming up, you know, to the main event of giving him a full beat up. And Eugene says was just a moment there where something snapped inside of him. And he grabbed a hold of Garrison and managed to wrestle him to the ground. And there was that moment where he realized that he was stronger than Garrison John's. And he had more physical strength. And so he pinned him to the ground and sat on his chest and pinned his arms down with his knees. And he had this guy there and then he, then he punched him, gave him a blood nose. And Eugene thought, this is going great. I can take this guy out. And then in that moment, he remembered his good Christian upbringing and what his mama had told him from the Sermon on the Mount. And so he said to Garrison Johns, Say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And he did. Garrison actually said it. And Eugene says, Garrison Johns was my first convert. <laughs> Questionable evangelism strategy, hey. But there you go. I don't know whether that conversion ever lasted. It probably wasn't very positive for, you, for Garrison, but um, that was the conversion of Garrison Johns. And so I'm not commending that as a method of uh, of outreach, um, beating people up, no. But um, it does kind of set the scene for what I want to talk about this morning. And, and maybe in some ways that story kind of symbolizes a little fear that some Christians carry with them into adulthood, which is like, we know we're supposed to be the salt of the earth, like Jesus talks about, and we know we're supposed to be the light of the world. We just feel like we're going to do it wrong. Yeah, we just feel like we're going to make this horrible mistake, and maybe we're going to end up beating someone up, um, figuratively, maybe. Uh, or, Or worse, maybe we feel like we're going to get beaten up by someone if we stick our neck out as a Christian, and we start saying stuff and we start making a public deal of our faith, then it's just going to get bad. It's going to be embarrassing for us. It's going to be embarrassing for other people. It's probably going to be embarrassing for God. And so we tend to do almost the opposite of what Eugene did. And we kind of just go into our shells as Christians a lot of the time. Is that right? That it's just easier to kind of go into our little Christian cocoon and not really uh, stick our neck out in the world and let people know that we're a Christian. I mean, we come here and we do it, so we feel fine about, you know, yes, hey, we're a Christian here. And, we, you know, we can say, yes, Jesus, I want to represent you before the world. Um, but when we walk out of here, not so much. It's just kind of let's blend in. Let's just smile and nod. Let's not make a scene here because it might not be good for your career. may not be good for your friendships. It might not be good for your family. It's just easier just to keep your head down and blend in. I think this is where a lot of Christians live if I'm reading it right that we just feel it's just too hard. We're just going to stay below the radar. And if that is where you're at, then yes, Jesus' words today are going to be a bit of a challenge to you. And that's okay, right? I mean, it's okay to be challenged. Yes, the Sermon on the Mount is going to have plenty of challenges for us, by the way. So we've got to be open to that because what, what Jesus is talking about here is the fact that this faith he's given us was never meant to be just a privatized affair between you and God. Uh, and I know in, in, in the previous messages, we have talked a lot about the heart, and the importance of our heart before God and the importance of purity of heart and hungering and thirsting after God and being poor in spirit. But I don't want you to think that that means God only cares about the inside and that who we are on the outside and who we are before the world doesn't matter. God's intention is always to change our hearts so that the love we have for Him would spill over into the lives of other people. So that we'd be part of what He's doing in the world. So that the love we've received wouldn't just stay with us, but it would be a blessing out into the world. So yes, this is going to be a bit of a challenge this morning, me included, right? This is is hard, and it's hard in our context, I know. But let's be open to it, and let's hear this not just as a word of challenge, but also as a word of hope. Hope for the world, because this is about God bringing the light of the gospel into the darkness and brokenness of this world. This is about the gospel still being good news for a world that desperately needs to hear it, right? Okay, so let's dive into this. Now, Jesus in this passage gives us two metaphors, and I want to unpack these with you this morning. They're, They're very simple metaphors on the surface, but there's a lot going on here. The metaphors of salt and the metaphor of light. So we start with salt, and he says in verse 13, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, in the first century, salt was a very important commodity, even more so than today. We have all the modern technology today, but you can imagine in an agricultural subsistence kind of society, A commodity like salt was extremely important, and it was part of everyday life for people in the first century. Some of the uses of salt we know. Some of them may be less familiar to you. Uh, Salt is a natural preservative, so people would use it to preserve food, stop the meat going off. I mean, before refrigeration, this was pretty important, right, to enable the food to last a little bit longer, so it preserved food. Uh, Salt flavored the food, right? We know this. Yeah, salt just gives a bit of a kick, Bit of a bite. I had a nice punnet of hot chips yesterday, nice salty chips, nothing like that. Yeah, you just feel that taste, feel that flavor. So good. Some of you want that right now. Just the salty goodness, not good for the cholesterol, but man, it tasted good. Uh, Salt was and is a natural purifier. So a little bit of salt added to water could help deal with some contaminants and deal with pollutants in water. So again, before all of the modern filtration systems that we have for water, you could put a bit of salt into water and that would help to clean it. Uh, Salt was also used for medicinal purposes. It sounds funny to us because we say today, you know, rub salt in the wound like it's a bad thing. But salt was a natural antiseptic. Uh, It was a natural anti-inflammatory. And so it was used for those kinds of medicinal purposes. And then... On top of all of those practical uses of salt, there was this deeper symbolic significance that salt had. Salt symbolized a relationship or a covenant between people. So salt symbolized a bond of faithfulness in a relationship between two people or between two parties. So, for example, in Leonardo da Vinci's painting of The Last Supper... I think we've got a picture of this. Now, it's going to be hard to see here, but you can look this up on your device later on. If you look carefully at Judas in that painting, you'll notice that he has knocked over the salt shaker. And that's, that's part of the original artwork, that Judas there, his arm is just knocked over, and the salt, you can, he's holding the money bag as well that he's got, but he's knocked over the salt shaker. And that represents this breakdown in relationship between Judas and Jesus. That salt covenant, that salt relationship between them has been destroyed. So salt represents a bond between people. Even in the Bible, it talks about a covenant of salt. And that covenant, when it's between people, can be damaged. It can be broken. So you've got all these various uses of salt in the ancient world, all of these meanings. And then the question is, you come to Matthew 5, and what is Jesus referring to? And some people will say, well, it's this particular usage of salt, or this is the metaphor. But Jesus doesn't tell us, right? He just says, you are the salt of the earth. So I think we're better to take the broad view and say, it's all of them. You can take all of those metaphors, all of those usages of salt, and they all come together to form a picture. They all come together, when you think about it, to form a picture of how we as Christians are called to be an influence in the world, how we are called to be an influence for good, how we're called to be an influence for the gospel. So salt enhances flavor in the same way that salt enhances the flavor of food. Paul says in Colossians, season your conversations with salt. Like that, that's the, the words that he said. He uses the same metaphor. So when we're talking to people and, and you say something about your faith, when you maybe express something from a Christian worldview in a conversation, rather than just going along with what everyone else is saying, you are seasoning that conversation with salt. You're adding a bit of flavor to the conversation rather than just going along with the blandness of what everyone else is saying. You're you're seasoning, you're flavoring, you're adding a little bit of kick, a little bit of bites. Uh, As salt was a preservative of food, we as Christians are called to be preserving goodness and truth and dignity of human lives. We're, We're called to prevent decay, just like salt prevented food from decaying. So when we see decay around us, social decay, we see decaying relationships or decaying hearts and minds, decaying neighborhoods, decaying communities. We as Christians are called into that space. We're called to move into those spaces with the gospel, with truth, with life, with love, with compassion. This is being the salt of the earth. Salt was a natural purifier. We are to be vessels of purity in the world. It doesn't mean telling everyone else they're wrong. doesn't mean being the moral police for everyone else. But it means that where we see injustice, we stand against it where we see people being dehumanized or degraded or exploited. We speak against it. We move against it. We stand against it. We are agents of purity in the world. Just as salt was that covenant between people, we are to show the world what healthy relationships look like. We're to show the world what that covenant of salt looks like. We practice fidelity in relationships. We practice stability. We practice longevity. We practice faithfulness and selfless love. That's the covenant of salt that we're showing the world. Just as salt was an agent of healing, it, was, it had healing properties, we are to be agents of healing in the world, renewing places and spaces, being restorative, being redemptive, bringing God's healing presence into uh, the various spaces that we move around. So all of these are ways... In which we can be the salt of the earth. You don't have to limit it to any one thing. Yes, it involves sometimes your words. Sometimes it's going to involve you speaking up. We need to be prepared to do that, saying a word about our faith, sharing a bit of our story, sharing a bit of God's story. Other times it involves purely just the way that we live it's our character, it's maintaining our integrity. It's maintaining a love for other people and not defaulting into the game playing and the power games that are going on around us, but simply through the witness of our character, we are salt in the world. And there's a fairly serious warning that Jesus adds to this commandment to be the salt of the earth. He says, if salt loses its saltiness, then how can it be made salty again? Now, I am not a chemist. My understanding is that salt technically cannot lose its saltiness. That sodium chloride, is that what salt is? Someone's going to have to correct me afterwards. Sodium chloride cannot lose its saltiness. Anna and I had this conversation last night, because this morning she's teaching the same passage in Boost. So we were talking about this passage, and I said, I think technically salt can't lose its saltiness. And she said, I think it can. And so she looked it up on Google, and I was right. (laughs) So... Uh, you know how humble I am in these situations, so don't tell her I said that this morning. All right? I, I was very gracious and humble and said I would never tell anyone that I won that argument. But uh, I think I'm right. I think I'm right about this, that technically sodium chloride is just what it is. So the theory is then that what, well, what does Jesus mean when he says the salt loses its saltiness? What, what could happen, and particularly in, in the first century uh, sort of uh, scenario, is that salt could become... Uh, mixed with other substances. So salt could become mixed with dirt or it could become mixed with sand. And then when that happened, of course, salt is not going to be good for any of its purposes anymore. You can't use it as a purifier or a preservative or it's not going to enhance any flavor. So that's probably what Jesus was talking about. Salt could become contaminated when it's infiltrated by other things and there lose the purpose of its saltiness. Now you can hear, if you've got ears to hear, what this means for us when we leave this room this morning and head back out into our ordinary lives. We're going to go out into all these places and spaces where you work, where you live, your family, your extended family, school, university, all of these places and spaces. And we absolutely need to engage in the lives of other people around us. This is exactly what Jesus is saying to be the salt of the earth. He's not saying that we should live in a little Christian cocoon. But I think he is also subtly warning us That it's possible for us to be so influenced by the world around us that we stop looking any different to anyone else. That you can become so influenced by the values of people around you, they just become your values And the priorities of people that you work with just become your priorities. You just end up wanting what the world tells you to want. You're driven by consumer desires that are marketed to you every day. Your life goals become exactly the same as everyone else's life goals, and there's really nothing different about you. When that happens, if that happens, you've no longer got anything to offer the world. You've lost your saltiness. Yes, you are still a believer. I don't think that doesn't take away your salvation, but it means now your effectiveness... As part of God's mission is compromise because you're no different to anyone else. You've lost your saltiness. So Jesus is saying, I want you to be in the world, but I don't want you to be of it. I want you to be immersed in relationships with people who don't know me. That's so important, but I want you to maintain your saltiness. Salt's got to be distinctive, right? We should be distinctive, not for bad reasons. There's good different and there's bad different, isn't there? We need to be different for good reasons so people see your life, And they see your witness and they are drawn to something. Like Jesus says later on, they see your good deeds and they glorify your Father who's in heaven. Now that's their choice, not yours. But you can be a witness that encourages that to happen. So there's a a challenge to be the salt of the earth and there's a warning against losing our saltiness. Now, park that metaphor for a minute. Let's go on and talk about light and then we're going to bring all this back together. So, Jesus then says, you are the light of the world. Now, what's he doing here? It's easy to think, well, this is just a convenient metaphor that Jesus pulls out of the air. You're the light of the world. Light seems like a good way to describe this. Let's do salt and let's do light. Could have used anything. But Jesus is being very strategic by using this image of light. To understand this image, you have to go back to the Old Testament. There's a long biblical story that goes into this metaphor of light. So flick back for a moment to Isaiah chapter 49, or just watch the screen and I'll read it for you. But let me just show you where this metaphor comes from. This is God talking about the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Isaiah 49 verse 6. I will make you, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So God is saying here, his purpose, even in the Old Testament, His purpose for Israel was not that they would keep God's blessing to themselves, but that they would be a light to the nations. That they would be this conduit of God's blessing to the peoples of the world. When, when God says Gentiles, He just means all non-Jewish people, all other ethnicities, all nations. So it's the equivalent of saying the world. I will make you the light to the world. This was God's design for Israel. Even in those Old Testament times, God wanted Israel to be distinctive so that other nations would watch and other nations would see God working with this nation here and a nation devoted to God. And other nations eventually would be drawn to Yahweh because of what they saw in the life of Israel. Israel was intended to be the light of the world. Now, that was never fulfilled in the Old Testament. Israel never lived up to that. But then you get to the New Testament... And you get to Jesus in John chapter 8, Jesus comes along and what does he say? I am the light of the world. Right? So before we get to you are the light of the world, you need to hear Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. What's he saying? That mission that was given to Israel is now being fulfilled through Jesus. So this calling to be the light of the world is now coming about, not through all Israel, but now through one particular Israelite, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one now through whom God's blessing is moving out to all nations, whose God's redemptive work is moving out, and all nations are being invited in now. All nations are being gathered into God. Jesus is the light of the world. Then, once we've got those two pieces in place, then we can hear Matthew 5, where Jesus turns to us, His disciples, and says, You are the light of the world. And when you hear it at the end of that sequence, it sounds different, doesn't it? Because you realize, oh, this is not just a convenient metaphor. Jesus is inviting us into a story. This is a story that goes back to Israel being the light of the world, now fulfilled through Jesus, and now outworked through the church. That reminds us that when we take up this calling to be the light of the world, we are part of something way bigger than ourselves. We're part, it's not like God just decided, what can I get the church to do before Jesus returns? I know, go and be the light of the world. No, he's told us, you are part of the story that's been going on for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. He started through Israel. In fact, it goes right back to Abraham. And on we go through Jesus. And now we are part of outworking this mission of God in the world. It helps us lift up our eyes and see this mission in a bigger perspective than just you reaching out to your neighbor. This is about us fulfilling God's mission, God fulfilling his mission through us, to be the light of the world, the light to the nations, the light to the Gentiles. So that's the big picture. And then Jesus brings it right down to the little picture, staying with the same metaphor of light, but look what he does with this in verse 15. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Now, help us understand this. I brought along my little first century lamp here. There's a picture on the screen as well. But this is a replica of exactly what Jesus would have been referring to. I got this in Israel when I was over there. I don't think it's from the first century, but it's a replica. Uh, and so this is the kind of thing that a family or an individual would use to light their home. Just a, You have oil goes in the top hole there, you can see. And you have a wick. Light the wick, and it draws from the oil. This would probably last a couple of hours if you put this on your shelf, and it would give light. Now, by our standards, this is not going to produce a huge amount of light, but that's because we're used to modern electricity. So we would think that's that seems pretty dim. But again, like for a family living in pitch darkness, this is a lot of light compared to pitch black inside and outside. This is an awful lot of light, and this might be enough to light a whole home or you might have two or three of these in different rooms, and you'd put them on a shelf. But what Jesus is saying is no one's going to come along and pour oil into this, and then light the wick, and and leave this lamp there, and then put a bowl over it. I mean, that's just an absurd image. Like, why would you do that? You've wasted your time. You've wasted oil. You've wasted light. And yet, isn't this where so many of us spend so much of our time we are the light of the world but how often do we do exactly what jesus is describing that when we're in here in church we're like all these little lamps here and we're all burning brightly and then we walk out of here at the end of the service and what do we do the bowl goes on and it's keep your head down and let's try not to get noticed. And maybe we don't mean to do it. And maybe we walk out of here with good intentions. But often that's what happens. And we end up living this kind of covered up lamp life. And Jesus said, that's not how I've created you to live. When you cover that lamp, when you cover that flame, it's, it's not good for you. And it's, it's denying others the light that they need. Other people need to see the light of the gospel in you. You may be the only light they see. Everyone around you, a lot of people walking in pitch darkness, pitch blackness, spiritually speaking, all around your workplace, maybe some of your family members, in your neighborhood streets, your schools and universities, people walking around in pitch darkness. And here you are, is this lamp. Here you are, this lamp into that environment. How could we even think about covering up that lamp? Other people need that light. Other people may see that light. That's the only thing they ever see. You may be the only Jesus that anyone ever sees. You may be the only gospel that anyone ever hears. Your life may be the only Bible that anyone ever reads. And hard as it is, and I know it's awkward, and I feel this myself, and I struggle with it, and I don't feel like I'm any naturally good at it, but this is the calling Jesus has to let your life shine. Don't cover it up. Don't be afraid. God hasn't given you a spirit of timidity, but of love and power. And self control. We've got to let our light shine before the world so that they might see our lives, see our good deeds, and I think we could add, hear our words, and Lord willing, glorify our Father who is in heaven. So these are the two images the salt and the light. And they're very overlapping images. They come together to form that picture of how we are to be a gospel influence in the world. I want to say gospel influence rather than just a good influence. I think there's a lot of people around who are a good influence. I think there's plenty of non-Christians who are good influences in the world. That's fine. We're called to be a gospel influence. Sometimes that may look exactly the same in the way that we love and serve and treat others with compassion. But we do it in Jesus' name, don't we? And we bring the fullness of His life and His presence within us into those spaces and places. And we we seek an opportunity, sensitively, to say something about the love of God. But we carry the presence of the Spirit with us. And so we're seeking not just to be good people, but to be gospel people wherever God has placed us. So what does it look like for you? Bring it right down to practical level. I can't make every connection, but I can make a few. Let me just share a few stories of what this could look like and what it, what it does look like. I had a conversation this week with Jeremy Carroll, uh, Jeremy Larney in our church, and uh, they oversee student life, which is a university ministry. So they're active on university campuses right across the country. Uh, a couple of weeks ago was orientation week. Some of you students know this, and, and orientation week for universities uh, can often get pretty crazy. But you've got student life Students and leaders around the country engaging students, having conversations, sharing their faith, following up those that are interested, and just moving in among the student body. Jeremy told me one little conversation he had with a guy named George. George from Tauranga. And George was invited to church when he was 11 years old. So there you go, kids, parents. This is not just adult stuff, right? It's not just about us as adults sharing their faith. Most people who become Christians become Christians before they get to adulthood through the influence of of sometimes family, but others around them as well. George got invited to church by a friend in his school. He went along, and that started a spiritual journey for him. It was really up and down, and he was kind of in and out and and didn't know where he was. But years and years down the track, now Jeremy's connected with him, and George had kind of drifted away from things, but he expressed a desire to start thinking about spiritual things again and start having some of these conversations. And so Jeremy's now journeying with him and starting to help him explore a relationship with God. It's, we were talking, it's hard to know exactly where some people are at spiritually. It's not always as clean cut as, well, he's in or he's out, or he's made a decision or he hasn't made a decision. In some ways, it's like, well, we just journey with people wherever they're at. And Jeremy's journeying with George. And Jeremy reminds me, by the way, that students are often more open than we think. We can assume university campuses are so hostile to the gospel, and and some are, and many are, but there are open hearts, and there have always been open hearts. People are still people, and we're trying to construct meaning out of our lives however we can. The fields are still ripe for harvest, Jesus said. you just got to lift up your eyes. Fields are ripe for harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the work is a few. So Jeremy's connecting with George, and it's not just the Student Life staff that are doing this, other students as well. I think of someone like uh, Margaret Carr in our church, and I didn't tell Margaret that I was going to say all this this morning, but Margaret is someone who spends hours of her week in Rosedale Retirement Village, And Margaret's well into her retirement years, but she's not slowing down, man. She is in there and she's mixing it up with the residents and she's having conversations and she's being a chaplain in there and she's facilitating these little services. I got to go and speak at a service that Margaret ran recently and she's just got the trust and respect of residents. After COVID, Margaret was one of the first people invited back in to the village because of the regard that she's held in there by the residents. Sometimes I think... You can assume that when you get into your retirement years, it's, you know, just the time is just yours to do whatever you like with. Maybe some of you who are retired, you're thinking that way. It's like, well, I've kind of given my service to God. I've done my thing. Maybe I was involved in some outreach thing earlier on, but now I'm retired. This is my time. Now I'm doing what I want to do. Now I'm living how I want to live. And God is saying to you, you may be in your 70s, maybe in your 80s, God is still saying to you, you are still the salt of the earth. You're still the light of the world. And you can be the salt of the earth among your extended family. You could be the salt of the earth in your retirement village. You could be the salt of the earth in your neighborhood. You could be the light of the world simply through praying for people around you. As long as God gives you breath in your lungs, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let me mention one more thing, uh, and this is a way that all of us can potentially get involved in being the salt of the earth, being the light of the world over the next few weeks. So there's a project called Hope in Hawke's Bay that we're going to jump into for the next three Sundays. Now, we all know about the devastation of the cyclone in Hawke's Bay region, and this has kind of drifted off. The radar, for some people maybe, because the media moves on from these things, but the clean-up and the rebuilding and the restoration is obviously massive in that area. So there is a project that's been initiated by the Auckland Church Network, of which we are a part, where churches in Auckland are connecting with churches in the Hawke's Bay. And there's a range of resources that have been identified by Hawke's Bay churches, and again, I've had conversations with people, and I'm assured that these are genuine needs So we're not just sending stuff down there that's not useful, but these are churches in the Hawke's Bay that have set quantity targets for particular resources that are useful and helpful right now that they can distribute to individuals in their communities. They can distribute to families who are trying to clean up their properties. So what we're going to do is over the next three Sundays invite you to bring some of these resources here to church, and then we've got volunteers that will take them to the North Shore drop-off depot, and they will then be transported down to... Hawke's Bay Churches, who will give them to people in need down there. So here's the resources on the next slide that we're looking for. I'm not imagining many of you have got diggers, but if you do, feel free. I'm imagining most of you are probably more in the gloves and gumboots category And that's fine. You can either, like if you've got good stuff lying around, maybe don't give an old pair of socks. But, you know, if you've got a a decent pair of gloves, maybe you've got a water blaster. We're asking for, unless it's a digger, we're asking for these things to be given without expectation of return. So please don't follow up in three weeks' time saying, where's my pair of gloves that I sent down? Uh, you're You're just giving, right? You're just being generous. Uh, So there's, I know, big things and small things there. They did have spades on that list, but they've taken that off because they've hit the quantity target. But these are the things that we're asking you to bring. So you could, if you've got them at home, great, or you could go out this week and buy. And again, families, go and take your kids to Mitre 10 or the warehouse and get some gumboots and some socks and talk about what's going on in this project and maybe pray for the people that these gumboots are going to go towards. You will never meet them. That's okay. God knows. But you can pray for them. And that's a way of being a blessing. So for the next three Sundays, we're going to have a designated area at the back of the gym that you can bring these things, and then all the rest of it will be taken care of. But think about this. Make time for this. Focus on this. And by getting involved in this, which is a reasonably small little thing, We're not just being good citizens, right? we're not just being good Aucklanders, we are being the salt of the earth, and we are being the light of the world. This is one way, this way involves our actions rather than our words, but this is one way of fulfilling in our day the calling that Jesus gave us 2,000 years ago. It looks like many things, but this is one thing. So make some time in your schedule for this. I want to encourage you to think about what it looks like in your own world this week to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world. I want you to think about now, just in the quietness of your own heart, whether there's a way in which you've lost your saltiness, a way in which maybe you are that lamp, that there's just a big bowl over the top of your lamp at the moment. So much of this just comes down to everyday conversations, doesn't it? It's not always the big things. It's not always the dramatic things. It comes down to small little everyday conversations, moments that come and then go. And you can either lean into that moment or you can let it pass. This is what it comes down to in your workplaces and schools and homes and universities. But I want you to, before the Lord this morning, search your heart and ask, God, is there, have I lost my saltiness? Maybe you have. Maybe you're just here this morning and your heart is cold to this and you don't care and you just can't wait for lunch. Well, maybe that's a sign that you've lost your saltiness. You're just waiting for a salty hamburger for lunch rather than being the salt of the world. It's a time to come before the Lord and say, God, I've just, you know, I I love you and I, I do hunger and thirst for you. But this, being Christ in the world, my heart's not there and I'm not in this and I'm not stirred by this. And okay, start there. Start by just bringing that to the Lord and just telling him that. And asking him and saying, God, would you just make me salty again? Would you just bring back that saltiness in my life? God, would you take this flame? And you are the light of the world, regardless of what you do with it. But you are this little lamp. So could you say, God, I have this little flame of the gospel. I am the light. But God, would you just fan this into flame? And God, would you help me? And would you give me the courage by your spirit to take the bowl off the lamp this week? Or even just to take it off a little bit more? Just let some of this light shine into the lives of the people that you are going to be spending time with over the next seven days? Could you ask God to give you the braveness and the courage of His Spirit to let that light shine just a little bit more? And then as you go through your week, be attentive to what the Holy Spirit's doing. So much of this is just awareness. It's having your radar up then. And when those moments come along, take hold of them and say, God, this is a time, salt of the earth, light of the world. It's not just all what happens here on Sundays. It's about us moving out into the cracks and the crevices of society to be those that season our conversations with salt and shine our light into the world. So let's take Jesus at His word, and let's not do it out of guilt or any obligation, but out of gratitude for all that God has done for us and the light that He's poured into our lives. Let's be the light of the world to show others the light of the knowledge, the glory of God, Revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to pray you'd stir our hearts with this. I pray you'd stir my heart this morning. Uh, help us, God, not to wait around for a feeling before we take steps forward, but we do want our hearts to be broken for the things that break your heart. And we know, God, your heart is broken by what you see in the world around us, Lord, by the darkness of lives and situations, the hopelessness. Uh, and, God, a, a, a world that just is walking so far away from you. But, God, would you just give us a heart to move towards others with love and with compassion this week? Would you place on our hearts now, God, people that you might be nudging us to have a conversation with this week? Would you prompt us with the next steps, God, maybe the hope in Hawke's Bay, maybe there's something else, God, that we can do, take a step to help us, God, just to take a first step towards other people? towards being the light, towards being the salt. God, we want to say, we need your help. This doesn't come naturally to us. It doesn't feel comfortable. It doesn't, it doesn't always gel with who we want to be. But God, we know that we would not be your children this morning unless someone else had been the light of the world to us, unless someone else had been the salt of the earth to us. And so we want to say, yes, Jesus, we will pass on what you've given us to others. And we will seek in our own little imperfect ways to shine the light of the gospel, the light of your love, into the lives and places and spaces that you've placed us. God, send us out today as your people, part of this great story, your mission in the world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shore Community Church.